gentlemen how you doing this is uncle earl your host captain and dj of the underground ultimate underground experience that is here in hollywood <sighs> today is going to be very exciting and i'm talking very fast because there's a lot that i want to get out to you a lot of information here uncle earl was invited to a screening of a film aka doc palmas and with the los angeles jewish film festival and uh doc palmas you know his songs now i heard his history uh he was paralyzed with polio as a child Brooklyn-born Jerome Felder reinvented himself as a blues singer, renaming himself Doc Palmas, and then emerged as one of the most brilliant songwriters of the early rock and roll era, writing Save the Last Dance for Me, This Magic Moment, Viva Las Vegas, and dozens of others, packed with incomparable music and rare footage a.k.a. Doc Palmas featured interviews with Doc's collaborators and friends including Lieber and Stoller, Dr. John, Benny King, Dion from Dion and the Belmonts, and B.B. King. The film was directed by Peter Miller and Will Hector, conceived and produced by Sharon Felder. It was a documentary and it was incredible. Uh, there was a Q&A hosted by Nate Lamb and if you guys don't know who he is, you should Google him because he is very incredible. He was the moderator. So here we go on this journey. And I want to say thank you right up front to Miss Hillary Helstein and Roswolf PR. Okay, here we go. My name at birth was Jerome Sullivan Felder. I was born June 27th, 1925 in Brooklyn. You know, everybody was an immigrant there. I don't think any adult in that area was born in America, including my parents. Like so many kids his age, Daddy loved sports. My grandmother always told me that he was the most physical child you've ever seen. And as a matter of fact, they could never contain him. My father contracted polio when he was six. Polio was a disease that afflicted the young and was a disease that every parent feared their child contracting. It was a horrible outbreak, so they sent him to a camp in Connecticut to avoid the epidemic, and that is ironically where he caught it, supposedly in the swimming pool. He told me that he woke up the next morning and couldn't move his legs. They were absolutely paralyzed. They put him in a cast from his neck down for a year. It was terrible. He was in institutions, in iron lungs, one facility after another. It was like a dream, you know? The only time it would get real was the doctor would cut down his long ward and he would look at one day, operate, don't operate, operate, don't operate. 
they bullied them, they beat them up. And he told me stories about how one intern would stand at the foot of his bed and lift his feet up in the air and then just drop them and stand there and laugh. It was like you were getting punished. But you were being punished for being physically handicapped. That's exactly what it was. One of Doc's great entertainments was listening to the radio. What, of course, caught Doc's attention was the African-American music coming on one side of the dial. Well, I've been Kansas City. Girls and everything is really all right. And to him, it had seemed to have come from a completely different universe. When I was about 15 or 16 years old, I heard a Joe Turner record, Tiny Brown Blues. That, to me, was everything music was supposed to be. I can't explain that. I got... It was a transformation of my life. What Doc heard in Piney Ground Blues was just the most powerhouse sledgehammer kind of voice, just the triumph of the human spirit. Doc became a blues singer by accident, really. He was down at a place in a village called George's Tavern, listening to a trumpet player named Frankie Newton. And I was standing in front of Bandstand, I didn't even have money to buy a beer. And finally, Dominic, one of the owners, came over to me and said, what are you doing here? Out of thin air, he made up this outrageous lie. He told uh, the owner that he was a blues singer and he was there to perform. Now, of course, there was no such thing as a 17-year-old Jewish blues singer or a white blues singer or anything, anything close to it. And they say, oh yeah, you're a blues singer. Why don't you get up there on that stand and sing us a blues? So Doc got up there, Frankie Newton says, what key? Doc says, whatever key you want to play. And <laughs> any key. Well, I said, hello, baby, baby. I had to call you on the was this heavyset Jewish kid in a shiny shirt who was going up on stage with one of the top trumpet players in jazz, and he somehow got through it. And I think this kind of flipped a switch in his mind. So this was something that he could do again. And sure enough, he went back to the club every single day that summer. I was making $40 a week performing at a hotshot Greenwich Village night spot. An 18-year-old cool wonder trying to convince the world and myself I had been doing this forever. I was a white boy hooked on the blues, a lifetime habit that I would never be able to shake. and never seriously tried because it wasn't a monkey on my back. It was a midnight lady with a love lock on my soul. Exhale Mind Body Spa Hollywood wants you to fall in suit and salute your hero in life with a flow massage and receive $35 off. Or put your best face forward with their anti-aging and element busting brighten facial at $50 off. To book your therapies today, call 323-491-1376 or visit ExhaleSpa.com Hollywood. I think Doc had... Uh more familiarity with blues than most blacks. You gotta live something to be able to sing something. He lived a lot of blues. So there you are. I like the blues because they tell a sad story. They're bottom music. I like to sing for Negro audiences because they're tough. You can't fool them with show tricks. Imagine though, people come to see me to forget their troubles. Doc recorded probably about 50 sides. This was a time where most of the songs were 78s, one song per side. The recordings that Doc made, these are not mellow, hold-back emotion recording. They're about all kinds of subjects, and women mostly. It's pretty straight ahead. I listened to Symphony Sid when I was a boy. And I kept the radio on when I was supposed to be asleep. The music is so crazy with the light is low, the music of the real knockdown through. And Symphony Sid always introduced Doc Palmer singing Alley, 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 You're So Good to Me. And then something about three ring bottoms 
and advertising the bug stitches that Ali's pants shop had. And then at the end, after the music ends, I say by myself, and the prices are real gone. I remember that story then. <laughs> now the commercial was so popular that Apollo Records asked me to do a full-length version. So the full-length version I did had nothing to do with the pants. It had to do with an incident in the alley, which was, you know, a nasty song. To the end of his singing career, this is what he was known for. A song that first saw life as a jingle for a pants store. Of course, Doc started out as a blues singer, and his greatest record was Heartlessly. That was his last single. I love that record. If Elvis had sung Heartlessly, it would be a standard, it would have been a huge hit. And in fact, Alan Freed, the pioneering rock and roll DJ, was championing this record, which meant it probably would have been a hit. But RCA Victor bought the master from this little label. The thing that really puzzled him is RCA never released the record. Now it's possible that the executives at RCA thought that they had bought a record by a young black R&B singer who had a promising career in front of him, and when they realized that they had bought a record by a 31-year-old handicapped Jewish man, they had second thoughts. Atlantic Records always were asked to be the right song. See, I was interested in getting them to give me a recording contract. They were always trying to get me the right to be honest. People like Robert Baker, Ruth Brown, Will Green. All of this really changed again because of Joe Turner. I went to this club and I heard Joe Turner singing. He was the regular singer and they called people up from the audience. And I did a number and Joe heard me. The next afternoon, Joe Turner was talking to Ahmed Erdogan, who is one of the founding partners of Atlantic Records, and telling him about this incredible white guy on crutches that he had seen singing the blues and doing it well up in Harlem. He had, Joe Turner had never seen such a thing. Doc happened to stick his head in the door and Joe said, that's the guy. Well, this is Doc's idol. I, I don't know that he had ever spoken to him before. Ahmed Erdogan introduced him as Doc Palmas. He writes songs for us. Joe Turner said, why don't you write me some songs? Doc realizes he has to write something really wonderful for Joe and ends up writing some of Joe Turner's best material. But once I heard Joe Turner sing, from then on I knew what was supposed to happen with the song. I was able to write with a lot of that influence inside. And what had happened, I had the great privilege of getting to meet the person who had really started my career and say started my life. I was beginning to get a reputation, but underneath I was always trembling and screaming. My hotel room was always the scene of endless trips in and out of the bed. Constantly changing clothes, always on the phone, anything to keep me from quietly living with myself. Always trying to maneuver a girl in the room, talk to her, make love to her or write a song, or write a story, or listen to the blues on the radio, on records, and listen and lose myself. Doc had told Willie that he was a songwriter, but Willie hadn't really heard of any of the artists that Doc was writing for. They were black rhythm and blues. She kept pressing Doc to play her some of the songs that he had written, and finally he relented. He play her the song that he had just done for Ray Charles. Now my room has got two windows, but the sun shall never come through. You know it's always the The lyrics, I thought he was describing himself. And how lonely he must be at times. It just seemed to me that it was his soul speaking from that song. I mean, this was his strength, was his ability to put forth his insecurities, his weaknesses, not to try to hide them in any way. I mean, it's a great strategy. How is somebody ever going to put you down for something you've already put out there and you know, read out in front? And a song like Only Avenue 
just can change you as to how you look at the world. No sarcasm. It's just like just because of you, I've been crying, I've been dying on Lonely Avenue. Maybe you could then realize it's okay to go down there. And maybe that's healing. When he wrote Lonely Avenue, I was up and raised all the shit out that time. No one ever kissed me. After a couple of months, I would find a note under my door at night, a poem from Jerome. He was very romantic, and eventually I would get one almost every night. And then I could see, oh, he is getting serious. And I went home for Christmas, and the phone rings. And it was Jerome. He says, will you marry me? Oh my God. Oh. I was in such shock. I really was. And I said, I can't answer that right now. I said our goodbyes and I told my mother this was somebody I met in New York. Very nice man. He's a songwriter, a fabulous mind. He's crippled and he's a Jew. And he just asked me to marry him. <laughs> I'm going to jump out the window. <laughs> when I left there, I made up my mind for the first time in my life that I'm going to do something that I want to do because I never went against anything my mother had ever said. No. So when I went back and Doc asked me again, I said yes. Amoeba Music honors all the members of our armed forces. Treat the hero in your life to the best in music, movies, shirts, headphones, and live entertainment. For more information, visit www.amoeba.com. That's A-M-O-E-B-A.com for discounts and special offers which expire October 18th. Visit www.amoeba.com. I called up Atlantic Records and said, well... I just saw a song on a jukebox and was very casual about it. And whoever answered said, I guess you're looking for some money. I said, yep. So I got my first serious money. I probably got a check for about $2,500. And we were able to live for a year. He had a top 10 chart hit and ammunition with which he could now go and ply his trade. people had stopped buying records. That's how his rock and roll era started. So some very shrewd record impresarios that said to themselves, hey, if we can get kids to come to the store, they got some spending money, we can have a whole new business. So now they had to get people to write music for kids. Doc had a little cousin named Nisha who lived out in Brighton Beach. She was a high school student. Doc was already in his 30s. Nisha had a friend named Mort Schumann. She was 18, and Mort really reminded Nisha of her cousin Doc. And she said, oh, listen, I know this fellow who does this professionally for a living, and he's also a blues singer, and I said, that's funny, I didn't know you had black people in your family. So I told him, listen, Mort, I'm looking for an apprentice, because if I could write a lot of songs, I could really invade this market. So he knew a lot about teenage likes and dislikes. And of course, there was nothing more I wanted in the world, and so that's how it started. I think he saw Mort as providing, you know, a younger sensibility and the opportunity to adapt to something that was based on the kind of music that Doc was so influenced by and was so passionate about, but to which he had to make a slight adjustment. And I had him sit in the room with me while I wrote songs for a year, so he saw everything I did, and then he started contributing. I'm leaving you. So it was a true collaboration. Uh, for whatever reason, it was very easy for us to write together. And I would drive Doc into the city. Sometimes we'd meet more there, and we'd go to the Brill Building, primarily. Because in the Brill Building, there were floors and floors of music publishers that you could sell your songs to. They would demonstrate a song that they had just written. And more than not, they were able to sell a song. 
And Otis Blackwell, a dear old friend of mine, was becoming successful as a songwriter. And he brought Mort Schumann and myself over to Hill and Range Songs. Hill and Range was one of the biggest publishing companies. They handled Elvis Presley, among others. They put Morty and Doc under contract. Really for the first time in their lives, they were making a steady living. And for Doc especially, the $200 a month meant that he could now be a family man. He said to me on many occasions that when we got married, his life now had a direction that he felt he never had before. And then when I became pregnant, he was going to be a father. Oh my God. <laughs> he was beside himself when Sharon was born. It was the most wonderful thing that could have happened. And it was wonderful to get away from the city and be out there. The only problem was going to Hill and Range because of the distance. So I would drive him back and forth to the city. We would meet for dinner. Eventually, we thought it might be a good idea that he take a room in the Forest Hotel, which was right across the street from the side door to the grill building where he could just easily walk back and forth. And so it seemed perfect. That was the plan. Yeah, in those days, you'd see my brother in the lobby, two or three or later in the morning, and people would come in and say hello. Sometimes there were fans, the music aficionados. Sometimes there were just the people of the night of New York that he was very friendly with that knew and so this colorful group of Broadway characters collected at the Forest Hotel. And one of the most colorful characters of all, of course, was Doc. Every heartbroken hooker with a hard luck story knew to come and sit by Doc, and he would feed them, and he would provide emotional comfort for them. Every strung out, broke down, compulsive gambler uh, found Doc to be their new port of call, their new safe harbor. Magic Image Hollywood Magazine wants you to reach audiences on their heavily visited website and print publication. This is a very unique opportunity to advertise in a magazine that is strategically placed on newsstands and mailed to thousands of readers. Chamber members will receive 50% off for advertising with Magic Image Hollywood Magazine. Contact info at magicimagemagazine.com or visit www.magicimagemagazine.com. It was a brilliantly orchestrated song. Violins and cellos rising and falling in pitch. And it's probably the most perfect 15 seconds to start a song. And then comes in the voice of Benny King. It took me by surprise. The song itself was about love, both the beauty of it and the mystery of it and the terror of it, and Benny King laid down an incredibly emotional vocal. You know the theory of punctuated equilibrium in geology? It says basically that planetary surfaces are very stable for a long time, and then all of a sudden, boom. Plenty of anybody ever been in an earthquake knows that. But this magic moment's about that earthquake. It doesn't take very much to set it off. And you can't predict that moment. One night, somewhere around 1960, in his house in Lindbergh, while Willie was asleep, Doc began to write a song. He was setting words to a melody that Mort had written while he was traveling in Mexico. Whenever I wrote those kind of Latin songs, what I would do, I would try to get the lyric to sound like a translation. And especially, it sounded like the Spanish translation. You would subconsciously have that Latin image in your mind. Now, when I'm sitting at the piano with him, he's playing this song and say the best answer. And I did get emotional because the story of what made the song happen. So I said, whoa. A few moments later, the red light went on in the studio and the tape began to roll. And he stepped up to the microphone and recorded maybe the most beautiful vocal of his life. You can dance. Every dance with the guy who gives you the eye, let him hold you tight. The day we were married, 
got the idea because he had said, "Why don't you get up and dance with all these people?" But don't forget who's taking you home and in whose arms you're gonna be. So, Donna, say the last dance for me. And later on, when we were at home, I commented to him that I enjoyed dancing. But I was going to give him big hugs and kisses because I couldn't dance with him. And he said, "You saved the best for last for me." He's singing about himself. Who else is he singing about? But I'm going to take you home. And <laughs> he's not dancing with his wife. He danced with his wife at the wedding. You danced with her at the wedding. But that song, if you look at the words carefully. <laughs> Here we have a man with polio who cannot dance, writing the most wonderful dance song ever. And that song means to me something very special. I still can't think of that song. Without feeling. Very sad and happy, same time. Because Doc wrote that for me, and he meant that from his heart. So, darling, say the last dance for me. Hi, this is Jacob on K-Lit Live FM Los Angeles. You're listening to Uncle Earl, the ultimate underground experience. Records called us up and said, "Listen, we have this group of you know Bronx villains stealing hubcaps off cars and things like that. You know, I mean, just very, very sort of normal pursuits, I guess, for young, healthy teenagers from the Bronx. And it was called Dion and the Belmonts. We need a hit for them. And so we sat down, and all of a sudden, I started doing ooh, ooh, whoa, ooh. and to uh, out of space. You know, I would say from the Bronx to uh, you know." My world became limitless. The song was originally called "It's Great to Be Young and in Love," but when people are young, it's really torture mostly to be in love. So I changed it to "Why Must I Be a Teenager in Love," and it signaled all of the fear and anxiety and longing of being that age and experiencing love for the first time. Teenager in love has everything you want to know about a relationship. Bob Dylan said, "Everything you need to know is in Teenager in Love." What an amazing thing for Bob Dylan to say. Why must I be a teenager in love? A teenager would never sing that. <laughs> But you know, when I listen to it now, I could say, "Yeah, that 17-year-old kid brought something to that song. That is what Doc brought to everything—the blues. You know, the fear of abandonment and being misunderstood, and no matter what, you know, if I live to be 121, I'll still be a teenager." Each time we have a quarrel. Three records of that song in the top ten big. It was the Dion record, a record by Marty Wilde, and a record by a guy by the name of Craig Douglas. And because of this, we were the guests of the British Recording Industry. Why must I be a teenager in love? One day I feel so happy. So here we got to England. And all of a sudden, we were celebrities. This went on. We did television shows in England. We were treated like royalty. We had a beautiful apartment above the Mirabelle restaurant, and they wrote for the Old Boy Show. They met Lamar Fike, who was one of Elvis's guys. Elvis was in the army in Germany. So Lamar told us he was going to Germany to visit Elvis, and if we had any material for him. So Morty and I said, "Well, we have. A, I think we have a kind of a song that would be suitable to him." And 
and so they knocked out a demo in a little studio and it was a bluesy song called Mess and Blues and they thought that would be the last of it and when Elvis came home and went into the studio almost immediately one of the first songs he recorded was a Mess of Blues and it was the uh, B-side of It's Now or Never so it was a huge, huge hit for them Experience that the number of songs that we still remember today that originated in the Brill Building in a 1650 Broadway is extraordinary. These songwriters came almost exclusively from Brooklyn, and they were almost entirely Jewish. This was really the center of pop songwriting. Jerry Goffin called me yesterday and apologized for copying so many of my songs. I told him he was silly. And I invited him over. When I talked to Doc, it was like talking to the professor of soulful pop music. And I was this young kid who could write a literate song, but with no soul. Sometimes I would call Doc and I'd say, Doc, tell me how to write a song. <laughs> write a soulful song like you would. Um, he says, I can't tell you that. you got to learn that. From the first day you met Phil Spector, you knew that he was extraordinarily ambitious and bright. Also eccentric, you know, he was a great character. When Philip was first starting off, he wandered into my father's orbit and did his best to absorb everything he could from all the professionals around him, not only my father, but Lieber and Stoller and the rest. But it soon became apparent to everyone that he had a certain kind of talent. And within a very short period of time, people were absorbing from him. I think what drew Doc and Phil together was both their intelligence and their creativity, but also that each of them recognized in the other the fact that they were an outsider. You know, he has a tendency, like most extraordinarily talented people, to be erratic, you know? But the overall feeling about knowing a Phil Spector that you've been touched with a man with extraordinary talent. Nights in the Forest Hotel, Phil would come over and he'd play guitar. And Phil was an excellent guitar player. And Phil and I would hang out in the lobby. Also, we'd write in the lobby sometimes. I met Doc in 1960. He befriended me at that time. He was the songwriter I wanted to meet when I came to New York. He was uncompromising and totally committed. He was the light of my life. And I'm going to be a better person because of Doc Thomas, if you can believe that. Roswolf PR commands you to enjoy Minipalsia El Musical, the feel-good show that will keep you dancing in the aisle. This hot old Latina cast stars Marabina Jaimez, Paloma Morales, Graciela Vararama, and Diana Balbano. Performances are all in Spanish. Chamber members receive $4 off up to 10 tickets by using code SGRW or Group 6 to receive $8 off each ticket for troops of 10 or more. Offer is valid from October 11th to December 2013. Call 818-990-3289 or visit http Coast of Bobby Darren tried to record Little Sister, but it just didn't come off in the studio. So we got a call that Elvis was looking for material, so we just sent it ahead to Elvis. And Elvis, in fact, liked the demos so much that he called both Doc and Mort at their homes in the middle of the night. Doc woke up and he was groggy, and when somebody on the other end told him that it was Elvis Presley calling, he thought it was a dumb practical joke and hung up. <laughs> the next morning he realized that in fact it had been Elvis. Little Sister was just a stinging kind of blues, it was just a sensational sound that Elvis got into in his evil way. The Elvis movies required a great deal of songwriting. I mean, they were essentially musicals, you know. <laughs> His contract with MGM required four movies a year. Ten songs per movie. 
it was an assembly line and with every year it became more tedious and joyless a procedure one of the themes that brought out the best in Doc and Morty's songwriting and also in Elvis Presley's performance of their songs was jealousy every time you kiss me I'm still not certain Suspicion takes jealousy to the point of paranoia. It, it is a seething song. You know, the ability to see in Elvis in 1964 or 1965 somebody who could still sing rock and roll songs. You know, where everybody else is sort of going, well, you know, he does, does these movies that are all set in Hawaii, driving Jeeps on the beach or sitting around in bars <laughs> without alcohol with his friends, getting in fights over the jukebox or something. And Doc just sort of very casually strolls out with this wonderful, rollicking, Viva Las Vegas thing. My father always said I'd never been to Vegas, but he always felt it should be the anthem of Vegas. It has gone through so many permutations and interpretations from the original Elvis to Sean Coleman to the dead Kennedys, to Bruce Springsteen, to ZZ Top, to a Viagra ad. In 1962, Doc wrote a song that more than 10 artists passed on and eventually it landed in the lap of a fairly bland tenor from Iowa named Andy Williams, who had his own variety show on television. It wasn't the kind of song that Andy Williams was used to singing, and when he first heard it, he didn't want to sing it at all. His manager eventually persuaded him to do it, and Can't Get Used to Losing You became the biggest hit of his career. Can't get used to song, I think, reflected very much what was happening in Doc's life. At the very moment when Doc's career was reaching the height of its success, so was Willie's. She was touring more. Her confidence was higher than it ever had been. They were both becoming increasingly devoted to their careers. And I think that in her heart she realized that they were growing apart. time in New York at the Forest Hotel, sometimes weeks at a time, writing songs. The congregation in the lobby started fairly late, 10, 11, and went on sometimes till dawn. But earlier in the evening, we'd get Doc in the chair and we would go out, he and I. So one evening we went up towards the 50s on Broadway. We hit a crack in the sidewalk and the chair tipped over. And my God, uh, Doc fell forward out of the chair. And there was no way in the world that I was able to lift him. So some passers-by helped me get him back in the chair. We had to put him in doctor's hospital. Oh God, it was awful. When he got out of the hospital, he was in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. He was at a low ebb in his life and pray to the kind of self-doubt that we all pray to. And I think all of the pressures and all of the differences that Doc and Willie had found a way to suppress since they first met were beginning to come to the surface. And that was the beginning of the, of the end of our marriage. This is Mixie with Uncle Earl, and you're listening to The Underground Experience. zip it a bop bop bow there were times when I thought of him as being someone caught in the river, flowing down that river. The hero would manage to pick up driftwood and build a boat. My father would just flow and now and then would manage to grab onto a rock and keep himself from flowing even farther down. 
Everything that can go wrong does. He tears the cartilage in his legs. He loses his partner, loses his wife. They go to sell their house. He realizes that he owes thousands of dollars in back taxes, and the IRS puts a lien on the house. In the space of a few months, Doc had lost nearly everything that he had worked his entire life to accumulate. And oddly, around this time, Doc met a girl who had moved to a room next to him in the forest, who was an inspiring actress. To people who knew Doc and Willie, what astonished them about Shirley Hauser was how much they looked alike. I would walk into the lobby and there would always be a crowd of men crowded around someone, but I couldn't see who it was. And I would often hear, Doc, I got a great story for you. Hey, Doc, what did you think of this? And the smoke would be like a halo around their heads. And one day it parted and I saw Doc. And I realized that he was the fulcrum around which so many people were always drawn. I mean, there was like a warmth that would emanate from him. The fact that he was so very, very bright and very, very funny, I found terribly attractive. I had been thinking of him as just a wonderful, good friend. One night we kissed. Somehow it began pulling us to another level at that time. I had turned 19 by then. And improbable as it was, it didn't seem so improbable to me. I found him the most fascinating man I'd ever met. Doc was always a BMI writer. Once a year, in June, they would have an award ceremony to commemorate those that had had some big hits that year. So Doc and I got dressed up. Doc got in his semi-made-together tuxedo. And uh, I went to this award dinner, and usually the terribly boring and they go on and on and on and he thought of it as an obligation but also an opportunity to catch up with some of the folks from the old scene what he didn't realize is that the honoree at the dinner had asked to be seated directly next to him and then i see john lennon and yoko and they were besieged by people and then i went to my table early to stay out of the way and i'm there for five minutes and who comes and sits next to me for john lennon and John immediately put his hand out to Doc and introduced himself as though Doc wouldn't know who he was. As it turned out, Doc's hits had meant a great deal to John, and for John Lennon, the point of the dinner was an opportunity to meet him. John gave Doc his phone number and said he would be moving to his area within a couple of weeks on 72nd Street. Every once in a while we would meet, and we'd go and there was a bookstore across the street and sit around. He'd always wear disguises. You'd see John in the grocery store, you'd see him in the hair salon, you'd see him in the coffee shop. But I never had the nerve to talk to him. And one day I went into the grocery store and there was John and Yoko. And I said, John, I'm Doc Pomus' daughter. And in the middle of a crowded store, he goes, Doc Pomus! And he sang the entire Save the Last Dance for me. And then I just kind of backed out of the store and said, thank I had heard through some friends on the music scene that Doc Thomas is actually going to give people songwriting classes. Like, anybody can just go and take a songwriting class with him. And I was like, this is great. Sign me up. I need a Dr. John or Joel Dorn or Tom Waits. Otis Blackwell, man. You know, how many colleges have Otis Blackwell teachers? Jesus. I would go over and do this, uh, the songwriting class. And he brought these people in because they wanted to learn about songwriting. He wanted to know, did I want to write songs? And did I want him to help me? And I said, yes. Well, yeah, do a little work. Yeah, let's do it like a woman. Yeah, okay. Just let's start. He's one of the greatest songwriters in the history of the world. What an amazing thing to do. And always these young female songwriters are gathering around who he would mentor. Of course, anything Doc said in, in terms of advice or suggestions, I would think that it would be gold. Yeah, you always check singers lying on the bed late at night. Look, women, smart women, are romantically attracted to smart men. And I think that with Doc, the seduction there was just his brain. One time I was in his apartment and I was so lonely. And I was looking at Doc and I said, I want to kiss you. And he's like, whatever makes you happy, baby. <laughs> so I went over and I just started kissing him and I was just stunned how sweet um, the kiss was. 
I started going to his apartment often on Sundays, and the lessons began. <laughs> he got a lot of energy from the young that wanted to learn from the masters. He was always the first to arrive at these clubs and the last to leave. It's closing time. One night Doc was at the bottom line and he saw a singer who completely electrified him. Kind of looked like a mix between a pimp and a bullfighter. Louis DeVille was the lead singer in a band called Mink DeVille that a lot of the press had lumped in with other punk bands. But in fact, he was someone who was thoroughly in love with Benny King and the music that Doc had written. The two began to write together. It was an unlikely collaboration. But out of that collaboration came one of the great albums of the early 80s, Le Chat Bleu by Mink DeVille. They're just amazing, amazing songs written between those two generations. Doc was very good at seeing in people the initial spark. He had radar for it, and I think he saw that in Willie, and they wrote great songs together. No, there's nothing that I Hey, it's smooth jazz artist Funky Boy and KLED Live FM from Los Angeles. Sometimes I wonder just what am I fighting for? I win some battles, but I always lose the war. I grew up in a segregated society, and many times I thought that when people treated me like they did treat me, not a race thing. I'm talking about just people in general. I cried many times and I said to myself, it's just got to be some other place where I could be treated like a person, like other people. And we went into the studio and BB won a Grammy for There Must Be a Better World Somewhere. smoked for about 35 years straight four or more packs of Chesterfield Kings no filter every single day anyone that loved Doc had tried to get him to stop smoking and he had been smoking since he was actually 12 years old but in his early 50s actually a week after I moved out he stopped smoking he liked food I think food was his companion in a lot of ways he tell me a, a thing called dial a steak Right. You could call up and have the liver steaks to you any time of the day or night. <laughs> fried chicken, absolutely. We always had fried chicken. I don't know where he got it. It was good. Like Cuban food, we used to go to Victor's a lot. We used to order from the Chinese Jane. He loved the cat's foot <laughs> jelly, and my grandmother, till the end of her life, made a big pot of lamb shanks for my father, at least once or twice a week. Being in the wheelchair and being so sedentary, he slowly gained more and more weight. I think because he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he couldn't run around, food was his outlet and gave him some tremendous satisfaction. It was his drug of choice. Doc's birthday parties became a yearly ritual. Uh, hundreds of people in the music business would come. And Joe Turner was there. Dr. John, Jerry Lieber, Mike Stoller, all Doc's contemporaries. John Belushi would come by and send in all the crates of champagne. Doc would have earlier had his driver get 45 buckets of chicken, Popeye's fried chicken, which at that time was brand new for New York at least. So you had the whole thing, you had 40s, 50s R&B blues going on, Doc in the middle, sex in the hallway. He walked into everything that was great about New York. In the mid-80s, Raul Felder's name was in the news every other day. And Doc was really proud of his brother. 
he really loved his brother. And Doc called me to tell me they were going to do this joint birthday party. I still have an invitation to it at Cats' Delicatessen. We had a very large number of people for our joint birthday party. Cats is a huge cabin-like hall, and it was filled going on well into the night. Every rock and roll and R&B artist you can think of was there. My uncle set up Klieg lights in front. It was like a movie premiere at Katz's. And the birthday cake was a replication of their house at 75 Manhattan Avenue. All the poor artist people were Doc's friends, and everybody with breast implants was Raul's friend. And it was so much fun, and Doc was so happy. Everyone had a wonderful time. When he left, Doc said, my lungs are hurting with smoke. I don't understand why it was bothering me. And Doc did not like doctors, so I think he waited quite a while before he went. He didn't know that at the time, but it was the beginning of the lung cancer. We were all waiting, and the doctor came out and said, we think he may have two months to live. And that was when the world changed. I'm not big on funerals, but there are some people that I have to say goodbye to in that way. I was there with hundreds and hundreds of other people that loved them just much. The hardest part was when Dr. John got up there because I knew how much Doc had loved him, and so when Dr. John did get up. Hey, I'm standing before you, a guy who used to be a scumbag at OP. It was shocking, it was true the moment, but when I totally lost it was I'm sorry. Dr. John sang my buddy. That was rough, but it was beautiful. When Jimmy got up and sang, this overwhelming realization hits you, Doc had to die to wake up the music business that a genius was in their midst. Doc is having this funeral so that little Jimmy Scott can get a fucker deal. Seymour Stein was in the audience with Sire Records. Hmm. And apparently he liked Jimmy's performance so much that he offered him a record deal right then. What's up? This is Norm Adams, and you're listening to the Ultimate Underground Experience with Uncle Earl on KLED Live. What happened to him with polio, his intelligence, his talent, somehow came together and didn't make him a bitter person. It made him a bigger person. I've never met anybody so cool and so big-hearted at the same time. Doc had it all. He was like a perfect universe of yin and yang, love and cool, and one body that had to be really big to contain it. As long as you're out there breathing and trying, something can happen. You can find depths within yourself that you never realize. Because we all have some kind of ability that if we work at and get it going to the utmost, we can accomplish stuff in this world that we only have dreamed about. But you just have to stay in there and push and shove, and there's a little spot for you. You know, you're gonna wake up some mornings and the world owns you, but you're gonna wake up other mornings and you're gonna own the world. 
Ladies and gentlemen, Uncle Earl here with a special countdown to the World Dance Awards 2013, honoring the best in media, choreography, breathtaking performances, celebrating and appreciating the art of dance, uniting the dance community. Despite dance being a driving force behind many major films, television programs, music artists, and breaking new media, the choreographers or the dance makers oftentimes remain in the background. Finally, a show to recognize the choreographer. The third annual World Dance Awards will honor and celebrate the best in the media choreography for the year 2012 in the categories of feature film, commercials, music video, concert live performance, television episodic, and television live performance, and television live performance award shows slash specials at the newly renovated beautiful Belasco nightclub theater downtown at 1050 South Hill Street, Los Angeles, California on Sunday, October 13th. The red carpet begins at 6 p.m. and the show begins at 7 p.m. It will be hosted by Robert Hoffman, star of Step Up to the Streets, and Miss Carmeet Bakar, former artist with the Pussycat Dolls, and embellishing this thrilling performance by notable choreographers in the commercial dance industry, including Mick Thompson, Trisha Miranda, J. Chris Moore, Marissa Osado, Deborah Brown with the Luminario Ballet, and Kyle Hanagami. You don't want to miss this, ladies and gentlemen. For more information, please go to www.worlddanceawards.com. All right, all right, all right. How you doing? I hope you enjoyed this journey today with Uncle Earl going to the movies, a.k.a. Doc Bombas. Please, please join our website for more information. I got a lot of goodies and surprises coming up. www.ultimateunderground.com. That's www.ultimateunderground.com. Join the family. Join the RSS feed. Get into the groove. And as I always say, I'm independent, and any support that you could lend would be appreciated because uh, we need you. Without love, without support, where are we? All right, I want y'all to go out there and make make it happen make it count have a wonderful day night evening dawn dusk whatever you have and just have it and uh, love each other love yourselves and love your environment as i always say we only have one take care ciao Night. Fever in the morning.